Well, I am normally not a big fan of Pearly Gates stories, but once in a while you hear a good one. So it seems there was a certain lady who died and stood just outside the gates of heaven, and she looked in to see a beautiful banquet table with some of her previously deceased loved ones seated around it. They saw her, and they began to wave excitedly. And the gatekeeper said to her, We've been looking for you. And the lady said, This is such an incredible place. This is such a beautiful place. How do I get in? Well, the gatekeeper smiled and said, All you have to do is spell one word correctly. Well, what is it, she asked. Spell love. L-O-V-E. And she was immediately welcomed into heaven. Well, a few years passed, and this same lady happened to be taking her turn as gatekeeper when her husband arrived unexpectedly. She said, I'm surprised to see you. How have you been? He said, I've been doing really well since you died. Do you remember that pretty young nurse who took care of you? Well, we fell in love and married three months after your funeral. And would you believe it? Your clothes fit her perfectly. And then I won the lottery, so I sold our old place, and we moved into a mansion. I quit my job. My new wife and I have been traveling the world. In fact, we were just on a ski trip in the Swiss Alps where I was buried in an avalanche, and that's why I'm here. By the way, how do I get in? His former wife said, all you have to do is spell one word correctly. He said, okay, what's that word? She said, Czechoslovakia. Well, I think we all realize that this is not the way to get into heaven when we die, which is really good news for all of us who are dependent on spell check. But the funny story does raise a most serious question. How does a person gain entrance into heaven after this life? Who will be in heaven and who won't? It's a most important issue to resolve because it affects literally every person in this room and every person on this planet, for that matter. And according to the Bible, everyone who's living and breathing will either transition from this life and go to heaven or to hell forever. Most people who are biblically literate understand this, and even some people who are biblically illiterate have an innate sense of this reality. Consequently, Eternal life should be at the top of our priority list. We don't want to be ignorant about this. We don't want to be deceived about life after death. And honestly, there is no reason in the world for us to be wrong or even to be uncertain about heaven. We learned from the words of Jesus last week that it's simply a matter of making a choice between two paths, the broad way or the narrow way. It's a choice between two gates, the wide gate and the small gate. It's a choice between two crowds, the many or the few. It's a choice between two destinations, destruction or life. And we each decide. We each stand at the crossroads and we decide, and then God allows us to live the rest of our lives on earth and to live eternally with our choice. So again today, I want to try to persuade you to take your life path more seriously, to take your life path more personally. 
You'll notice this morning that our text is all in red letters, words of Jesus in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. In 2008, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life conducted a particularly detailed study of faith in America, and it revealed that most people are very open to embrace the idea that there are many paths to heaven and that there are varied paths to heaven. Today, the majority does not believe that there is only one way. The idea of a narrow gate, the idea of a narrow path is considered by 70% percent of Americans to be limiting, to be intolerant, to be, well, (laughs) narrow. But here's the thing. Jesus knows that. He said it. It originated with him. He's not about political correctness. He is a truth teller. Sociologist Christian Smith believes that modern civil religion should be tolerant and should be inoffensive. And he says the future of our nation is not biblical Christianity, but rather it's what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Now think about that. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And here are the three tenets of this man-invented very very self-serving approach to religion. That the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number two, God does not need to be involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a crisis. Number three, good people go to heaven when they die. Now this is rather predictable because what I think this Christian Smith has done is I think he has actually crafted a religion about kind of the way things are and the way people are living, which makes it convenient. We accommodate, we accommodate religious thought to the way people are behaving rather than allowing 
faith to influence people's behavior. But here's the thing, folks. You have to decide once and for all if you believe, if you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, God in flesh. Do you believe Jesus when he said in John chapter 8, verse 58, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. When the Jews heard that, back in John 8, 58, they picked up rocks. They're going to stone him for saying that. They, under, they understood what he was saying. He was claiming to be God, and they didn't like it because they knew that if Jesus is God, it meant that everything he said was absolutely true and authoritative. And to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then you receive his word as the final word, especially on matters that refer to the afterlife. Now, if you choose not to believe that he's the Son of God, well, then you can go after one of a limitless number of other options. But listen, who else besides Jesus can tell us what's on the other side and how to get there? So what I want to do this morning is I just want to simply walk down through our text verse by verse by verse so we don't miss anything Jesus said on this subject that is so vital to each one of us. First of all, in verses 22 to 24, let me read it again. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Luke notes in verse 22 that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill his mission to suffer and die on the cross for our sins in our place and Jesus is teaching in the region of Perea when someone asks him a predictable question about whether just a few are going to be saved it was probably uh, a Jehovah's Witness a, a misplaced Jehovah's Witness in the crowd that asked that question folks that's a joke the Jehovah's Witnesses didn't begin until the mid-1800s He might have been trying to get Jesus to weigh in on a controversial theological debate, but look what Jesus does. He just ignores the question. He sets it aside. He turns it back around, and he says, in effect, don't worry about how many. Worry about who, especially worry about you. See, while we spend time talking about which denomination, which churches are close enough to the truth to be saved, Jesus focuses instead on personal responsibility. So, don't worry about how full heaven is going to be. You just make sure your salvation is secured. Now, some say all you need to do to go to heaven is be a good person. So treat people fairly, pay your taxes, and don't murder anybody, and you are in. That's called, it's called legalism. Others say you only need to believe something, anything. It doesn't really matter what, as long as you're sincere. That's called pluralism. 
And then still others say, it makes no difference what you believe or how you live. When we die, we're all going to a better place just by virtue of the fact that we were born and we lived on this earth, and that's called universalism. So, legalism, pluralism, universalism. One thing all of these views have in common is a sense of entitlement. It's kind of the downside of our American way of life. Entitlement has grown so out of proportion in the past few decades. We've convinced ourselves that we've got a lot of rights, but we've got very few responsibilities. We have the right to offend, but not be offended. We have the right to be financially subsidized without working. We have the right to receive free quality health care. We make demands and work the system in this generation without any conscience. And so, finally, we've got this sense of entitlement about heaven. God owes me. He owes me heaven because I'm a good person or because I believe something for goodness sake or because it doesn't matter how I live, only that I live. So going to heaven requires nothing. In contrast, Jesus warns, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Now the Greek word here for make every effort or maybe translated strive, is the Greek word agonia. It's descriptive of an athlete who trains to the point of exhaustion. It's descriptive of a soldier who desperately fights for his life on the battlefield. It's the very same word that is used by Luke, Dr. Luke, in his description of Jesus agonizing in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He agonized in prayer. So rather than taking heaven for granted, Jesus says we should make every effort to enter in. Now, between 85 and 95 percent of people expect to go to heaven. If you just do a straw poll on the streets of Evansville, Newburgh, any place else for that matter, most people believe that's where they're going. Well, is this expectation realistic? Is it justified in light of Jesus' words here? Do you, do you think that 85 to 95 percent of the people living in America today are making every effort? They are striving. They are agonizing, to be sure, that they're saved. Let's be honest. It's either this entitlement mentality or they're living in denial. But you need to understand this. Our striving is not about good works. That's not what it's talking about here. Jesus said, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. That's where we're to make this agonizing effort to enter through the narrow door. And the narrow door is Jesus. Now, there are a lot of religions in the world, and they each have their own door. But only one door opens into the kingdom of heaven, and that door is Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said, I am the door. And it's a narrow door. And the word narrow here 
is a Greek word that means restrictive. There are restrictions regarding who will go to heaven. Not everyone who wants to go to heaven will go to heaven, but only those who enter this door, this path that is described as narrow. Restrictive. Jesus only. Jesus only, which admittedly will exclude a lot of people. But Jesus said as much here. He said, many, many will try to enter but will not be able to. Now, Jesus welcomes all who come to him, regardless of social class, regardless of age, regardless of class, regardless of gender, regardless of personality, regardless of aptitude, regardless of nationality. All who come to him and only those who come to Jesus will be saved. You and I have to come to Jesus, and we come on his terms. We do not come on our terms. What are those terms? Well, believe on him, trust him as your Savior, repent of sins, and then obey. Commit your life to him. You make him the Lord of your life. Those are his terms. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven uh, to men by which we must be saved. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He who has the Son of God has life. Here it is. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I want you to listen to this letter. It was published in Melbourne, Australia, in a newspaper after a Billy Graham crusade, written by a young woman who was not able... That is, she could not bring herself to enter through the narrow, the narrow gate. After hearing Billy Graham on the radio and watching him on television, I'm totally sick of a religion that insists my soul and everyone else's needs saving. I've never felt that I was lost, nor do I feel that I sinned. Give me a practical religion that teaches gentleness, kindness, and tolerance. Remembers the aged. A religion that teaches children about goodness, not about sin. If in order to save my soul, I must accept such a philosophy as I have recently heard preached by Billy Graham, I prefer to remain forever damned. And even though I do not know this young woman, her words, her words make me sad. Well, let's move on in our text to verses 25 to 27. Jesus said, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. He'll answer, I don't, I don't know you or where you came from, then you'll say, we, we ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. 
And maybe you've heard an announcer on television or you've read an advertisement that says, act now, act now, this is a limited time offer. I think, I think that's a condensation of what Jesus is saying here. We've got to make our decision about him quickly, urgently even, because the door is narrow. And the door is closing, and once the door to heaven is shut, it will not be reopened. It's rather like the ark in the Old Testament says the Lord shut the door. And once the door was shut, it was not going to be opened. And I would imagine there were people beating on the sides of that ark, saying, open the door, let me in. Jesus said that people will beat on the door and plead for entrance, but to no avail. He says one door, one day rather, the door to heaven will be closed. And it may be closed by your death. It may be closed by the return of Jesus. And it may be closed by the hardening of your own heart. No one knows. No one knows. I don't know the day of my death. I don't know about the return of Jesus. And you see, we don't know about the hardening of our heart. You don't know at what point that your heart is going to harden. You can go for years, and you can sit in on church and get a little dab of gospel here and a little dab there, and you kind of have this feeling that you need to do something about it, act on it, move closer, get more serious, and you put it off. No, not now, not yet. What we don't realize is there is a, an indefinable, a mystical hardening of the heart. You, you can reach the point where it's not ever going to happen because you've said no so often. It's become illogical. It's become unrealistic to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You've been in the driver's seat of your life for so long, you're not about to give it up to anyone else. The door's going to close. Nobody knows when. All we know is that the door is open today. I want to be completely transparent with you this morning, my friends. There are very similar words spoken by Jesus in our text last week, and they are there in our text this week, and they're very unsettling to me. They're nearly identical in both passages, spoken directly to those who are turned away from heaven in both prophecies. These are the words of Jesus. You'll recognize them. I don't know you. We just read them in chapter 13, verse 25, verse 27. I don't know you. Last week, it was chapter 7, verse 23, I never knew you. Jesus is talking about relational knowledge here, not intellectual knowledge. These verses tell me that superficial familiarity with Jesus, mere affiliation with Jesus is not enough. It will not save you your soul. Serving him is not the same as knowing him. Even observing communion 
routinely or occasionally, being taught from his word routinely or regularly, it, it's not the same as knowing him. And I've been taken to deeper places in my spirit as I've meditated on these words before sharing them with you last weekend and again this weekend because I know how often I can be a Martha instead of a Mary. I know how easy it is for me to serve the church of Jesus rather than sit at the feet of Jesus, which is the better thing. I know how often I have marginalized his presence in worship. I've been distracted by thoughts about what we need to do to improve, about who I need to see after the service about whether or not one of the preschoolers is going to pull a fire alarm in the middle of the service. Here's the thing. I don't want to just know about Jesus, and I don't want to just serve the church of Jesus. I want to know him and I want to be known by him. Does he know you today? And then I was reading in my son's book, Not a Fan, this week, and I read this quote that pulled it all together and nailed it down for me. More than he wants our acts of piety, more than he wants our adherence to religion, more than he wants our observance of rules and rituals, more than he wants our words of testimony, he simply wants to know us and wants us to know him. Audrey Meyer wrote these lyrics to the worship song, All He Wants Is You. She wrote, Something more than gold for the master, something more than gifts to appease. There is only one thing that you alone can bring. There is only one gift that will please. All he wants is you. No one else will do. Not just a part he wants all of your heart, all he wants is all of you. All he wants is you. And unless he has your heart, you will be left outside knocking and pleading, and that desperation will give way to the despair we see in his words in verses 28 to 30. Jesus said, there will be weeping there, and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from the east and west, the north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Now, these words were especially spoken to the Jewish people because they were confident that they would be in heaven because of their spiritual heritage, because their forefathers, because of their forefathers. And Jesus actually names them, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But Jesus said 
those who reject him will not be in heaven regardless of their expectations, regardless of their family connections. At the same time, many others from the Gentile nations that were not expected to be in heaven will be there from the east and west and the north and the south. So the man wanted to know, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Jesus did not answer his pointed question hypothetically or theologically. Instead, he personalized it and he turned it he turned the question back to him asking, "What about you?" He did that a lot. He impressed on this man the same essential truths that we've been considering these two back-to-back weekends. There are only two life paths. Just two. Look at Jeremiah 